Hello and welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you readings from the following publications. The Wall Street Journal, Africanews.com, Anscape.com, Popular Science Magazine, The Associated Press, Smithsonian Magazine, TheRoot.com, and The Wichita Eagle. We're going to start off today's African American Hour with the story about someone who was born in the state of Kansas. It's from the BecauseOfThemWeCan.com website, and the article is Howard University Announces Historic Acquisition of Gordon Parks Photographs. It was originally published May 17, 2022, and was written by the Because of Them We Can staff. Howard University just announced a historic acquisition of Gordon Parks photos spanning five decades. Howard University and the Gordon Parks Foundation have announced a new acquisition by the HBCU that include 252 photographs from the late photographer spanning his five-decade career. The collection, a mix of gifts and purchases, will be housed in the Moreland Spingarn Research Center and features some of Parks' earliest work from the 1940s through the 1990s. It is one of the most comprehensive collections of the study of Parks' life and work and is an extension of the Foundation's commitment to supporting initiatives that advance the legacy of Parks' work for artists, scholars, students, and the public. The collection is organized by themes and subjects into 15 study sets, primed for various exhibitions and curricula advancing academic scholarship on Parks' contribution to the world as both an artist and humanitarian. Both Howard and the Foundation are working together to envision new research and programmatic offerings that can be drawn from the collection. Howard University is proud to be the recipient of such an important collection of work by African-American artist and photojournalist Gordon Parks. Mr. Parks was a trailblazer whose documentation of the lived experiences of African-Americans, especially during the civil rights period, inspired empathy, encouraged cultural and political criticism, and sparked activism among those who viewed his work. Having a collection of his timeless photographs will allow Howard University faculty, students, and visiting scholars to draw on his work and build upon his legacy of truth-telling and representation through the arts. Howard President Dr. Wayne A.I. Frederick said via a press statement. The uniqueness of the collection is found in Park's earliest works during the 1940s. His portraits include black residents in Minneapolis and Chicago, some of which were later featured in black media outlets, a direct link to his emergence as a popular press photographer. It was these communities, as well as the community at the Southside Community Arts Center in Chicago, where he ran a studio and exhibited his work, that would create the foundation for Park's inspiration. The collection also includes early portraits of influential figures before they achieved fame, including Robert Todd Duncan, one of the first African Americans to sing for a major opera company, best known for his role as Porgy in the premiere of Porgy and Bess. There are also photos of artist, educator, and co-founder of the DuSable Museum of African American History, Margaret Taylor Burroughs, musical conductor and first black guest conductor of the New York Philharmonic, Charles Dean Dixon, and actress Hilda Sims, best known for her role in the all-black Broadway production of Anna Lucasta. 
This landmark collection of photographs by one of the great chronicles of black American life provides artists, journalists, and scholars at Howard University with a new resource to study and embrace the lasting impact of Gordon Parks. As a photographer working in segregated Washington, D.C. in 1942, Parks established his first connections within Howard, which then embodied many of the values that his work came to represent. For him, that was a learning experience, which makes Howard a fitting place to keep his art alive, said Peter W. Kernhart, Jr., executive director of the Gordon Parks Foundation. The collection fortified Howard's place as the preeminent institution preserving the legacy of the global black experience. As a photographer and filmmaker, Parks left us with a unique narrative of the rich diversity that is African-American life in the United States and the beauty and pain of the American story more broadly during the second half of the 20th century, added director of the Moreland Spingarn Research Center, Benjamin Talton. The study sets show a clear arc in Parks' career, from his early work on black communities to his rise as a photographer of black celebrities, like Sidney Poitier in A Raisin in the Sun, New York, New York, 1959, Duke Ellington in Concert, New York, 1960, and Louis Armstrong, Los Angeles, California, 1969, all the way to his later work photographing fashion model Iman in the 1970s, Miles Davis in the 80s, and Spike Lee in the 90s. Parks used his camera as a medium to raise the discourse around black life and advance social justice. Foundation board member Jelani Cobb calling the acquisition a tremendous opportunity. Gordon Parks' work helped define American art in the 20th century, and there is no better place poised to help safeguard his legacy than the mecca of black education, said Cobb. There is one photograph that goes along with this story. It is a picture of Malcolm X in a brown suit pointing at the crowd and speaking. The subtitle reads, Malcolm X... Harlem, New York, 1963. That was a reading of the story. Howard University announces historic acquisition of Gordon Parks photographs. It was published May 17, 2022 at the becauseofthemwecan.com website and was written by the Because of Them We Can staff. The next story in today's African-American Hour is from the Wichita Eagle and its Kansas.com website. The title is, Kansas State Wildcats football legend trailblazer Verl Switzer dies at age 89. It was written by Kellis Robinette and was published June 5, 2022. One of the most decorated and influential athletes in Kansas State history has died. Verl Switzer, who starred as a running back for the Wildcats from 1950 to 1953, passed away on Saturday at age 89. Today's a sad day for Kansas State University, Kansas State Athletics Director Gene Taylor said in a statement. Verl was one of the most influential and impactful Kansas Staters in our lifetime and helped pave the way for so many others to follow in his footsteps. He will be forever remembered as a true trailblazer as we keep his family and friends in our thoughts and prayers. Switzer was a trailblazer during his time in Manhattan as he became the first black scholarship athlete to graduate from Kansas State. He earned a degree in physical education in 1954. 
He later earned his master's in education from K-State in 1974. His K-State legacy began in 1950 when he accepted an athletic scholarship from the Wildcats. It didn't take him long to become a star. Switzer earned All-American honors in three consecutive seasons from 1951 to 1953 while leading his team in a plethora of statistical categories. He piled up yards and touchdowns as both a running back and a return man. But he played more than just football at K-State. He was also the Big 7 indoor long jump champion in 1952 and garnered three letters in track and field. After his college career came to an end, he was the fourth player selected in the 1954 NFL Draft. The Green Bay Packers selected him with their first-round pick. To this day, Switzer remains the highest-drafted football player in K-State history. Switzer left the NFL to serve as a first lieutenant in the U.S. Air Force from 1956 to 1958, but he returned to the gridiron shortly afterward with the Calgary Stampeders of the Canadian Football League. Later in life, he returned to K-State and worked as an administrator in 1969. Switzer was long immortalized in the world of Wildcat sports as a charter member of the K-State Athletics Hall of Fame. His name can also be found at Bill Snyder Family Stadium in the school's football ring of honor. There's one photograph that goes along with this story. It shows Verl Switzer holding a large photograph of himself as a young football player. The caption reads, Verl Switzer holds a picture of himself at his home in Manhattan, Kansas, February 27, 2007. Switzer wore the number 24 at Kansas State, where he was the only black player on the 1953 football team. That was the story. Kansas State Wildcats football legend trailblazer Verl Switzer dies at age 89. It was written by Kellis Robinette, was originally published June 5, 2022, and it appeared in the Wichita Eagles Kansas.com website. Up next is a reading from TheRoot.com. The title is, Walmart Pulls Controversial Juneteenth Ice Cream After Online Backlash. It was written by Candace McDuffie and was originally published May 24, 2022. It didn't take long for the Internet to lash out once it got hold of Walmart's way of commemorating Juneteenth. Social media was ablaze with criticism after the images surfaced online of the company's Juneteenth ice cream, which was swirled, red velvet and cheesecake flavored. On the side of the carton was the quote, share and celebrate African-American culture, emancipation and enduring hope. Businesses are focused on profit in our capitalistic economy, so any chance to make money from a federal holiday is one that will always be taken. However, the most disturbing part is the company that makes the ice cream, Balkem, capital B-A-L-C-H-E-M, trademarked Juneteenth in 2021, the same year it was made an official federal holiday. Because of them, we can, and Culture Tag's founder, Unique Jones Gibson, noted, although Biochem trademarked the holiday, their company is far from diverse and inclusive. Perhaps they have a strong commitment to diversity and have pledged their financial support to the African-American community as well. 
However, there is no diversity amongst their leadership team. There are no black leaders on their website, nor are there any black members on their board. In a company statement to Fox television stations, Walmart apologized for the item and informed the public they would be removing the ice cream from its stores. Juneteenth holiday marks a celebration of freedom and independence. However, we receive feedback that a few items cause concern for some of our customers and we sincerely apologize. We are reviewing our assortment and will remove items as appropriate. The commodification of Juneteenth is reminiscent of the commodification of Kwanzaa in the 1990s. Apparently, all you need to do is give products pan-African colors to know the holiday being celebrated is about black people. Walmart is notoriously known for its products with poor quality low prices for customers. It has also been critiqued for years for unlivable wages, inhumane working conditions, and insufficient health care for its employees. There's one photograph that goes along with the story. It is the picture of the front of the Great Value Celebration Edition Juneteenth ice cream. It is in gold, red, green, and black colors. And and it has two hands below the name of the ice cream giving each other a high five. Also printed on the tub of ice cream is the statement, Our Story. Share and celebrate African-American culture, emancipation, and enduring hope. That was the story, Walmart pulls controversial Juneteenth ice cream after online backlash. It was written by Candace McDuffie and appeared at the Root.com website on May 24, 2022. Summer is almost here and you might want to try something besides iced tea or lemonade to drink. And here's a story with a recipe attached to it from SmithsonianMagazine.com. The title is, A Brief History of Red Drink, The Obscure Roots of a Centuries-Old Beverage That's Now a Juneteenth Fixture. It was written by Sahar Khan and was originally published in the June 2022 edition of Smithsonian Magazine. Is red a flavor? The question can lead to spirited debate in soul food restaurants, at cookouts, and in black homes. For well over a century in African-American communities, red drink has referred to a variety of highly sweetened ruby-colored drinks with a berry citrus flavor profile. The origin of this fixture has long been a mystery, but historians are tracing its roots to West Africa, where people first made red-colored teas from hibiscus flowers in the kola nuts some four centuries ago. Among the best known is Bissap, B-I-S-S-A-P, which hails from Senegal and has often been used for medicinal and ceremonial purposes. Judith Carney, a professor of geography at the University of California at Los Angeles, has found that enslaved people taken from West Africa carried hibiscus seeds to the Caribbean, the first port of call on the slave route, where the plant thrived. As the displaced Africans adapted to the unfamiliar settings, they altered their red drink recipes, drawing on the flora and traditions of the different Caribbean islands, adding spices like nutmeg, cinnamon, bay leaves, sugar, and occasionally spirits like rum. Today, hibiscus still grows in the Caribbean, where the flower-brewed red beverage became known as sorrel. 
Adrian Miller, author of the 2014 history Soul Food, says the continuing popularity of these beverages is a testament to the ingenuity of enslaved people finding substitutes for the red drinks of cultural memory. Because the American mainland was not as hospitable to hibiscus, Miller says enslaved people in the colonies adapted the drink again, replacing the hibiscus with berries in the South and cherries in the mid-Atlantic. According to Miller's research, the earliest mention of red drink on the mainland dates to the 1870s South, where black Americans colored lemonade red with strawberries, sumac, or tartaric acid. That was the drink for special occasions, going to the circus, emancipation celebrations, Miller says. Powdered drinks like Kool-Aid, introduced in the 1920s, and red sodas like Bic Red, invented in 1937, became popular substitutes for the homemade beverages. Then Caribbean immigrants brought sorrel to the U.S., and soon varieties of red drink were everywhere. This ancestral memory resonates with all of us, says Jackie Summers, an African-American distiller from Brooklyn who created a liqueur version of sorrel. Red drinks got terrific cultural significance because it's a story of perseverance, of people who refused to die in a culture that refused to die. Here's the recipe that goes along with this story. It says, Red Delicious, a sorrel recipe. The sorrel flower of the hibiscus family lends this classic punch its color and tartness, a pleasant counterpoint to the sweetness from the sugar. The drink is popular at cookouts and restaurants, but also is a mainstay at holidays like Juneteenth and Christmas. Ingredients. One cinnamon stick. Six cloves. One cup dried sorrel flowers. One cup sugar. One inch piece of fresh ginger. Sliced. Steps. Place ingredients with 10 cups of water in a saucepan and bring to a boil. Simmer for five minutes. Remove from heat, cover, and allow to steep for at least two hours, preferably overnight. Pour the mixture through a fine sieve into a pitcher or glass bottle and store in the refrigerator. Serve chilled. The punch keeps for up to a week. It adds that sorrel flowers are available online and in Caribbean markets. There are two photographs that go along with this story. The first is a color photograph of a bottle of red drink and a glass full of red drink full of ice. And then there is a hibiscus flower in front of them. The caption says, Early efforts to sow hibiscus on the mainland had mixed success. Today it grows in many states. In the South, hibiscus used in punch is known as Florida cranberry. The next photo is a black and white photograph of a parade float. There are four people on the float. On the side of the float, it says NAACP, founded 1909. The caption reads, a Juneteenth parade in Houston, 1976. The holiday recalls June 19, 1865, where African-Americans in Texas were told of the Emancipation Proclamation more than two years after Lincoln issued it. That was the story, A Brief History of Red Drink, written by Sahar Khan. It appeared in the June 2022 edition of Smithsonian Magazine's 
smithsonianmag.com website. The next reading on today's African American Hour comes from the Associated Press's AP.com website. The title is, Civil Rights Advocate Zernona Clayton is Still Fearless, is written by Michael Warren and was published June 8, 2022. Zernona is spelled X-E-R-N-O-N-A. A key aide to the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., who helped sustain the civil rights movement in the 1960s, says she's deeply saddened by the hate crimes seeking to terrorize people across America. But Zernona Clayton has been working for racial harmony since the movement began and refuses to accept mass killings as routine. We're having too many racial conflicts, Clayton 91 told the Associated Press during an interview in her office in Atlanta. It's so idiotic that we've had that racism in the first place because none of us had any say about how we got here. My mind always goes back to what Martin Luther King would have said, she said. He always said, you know, we can love each other. He said, there's just no reason why we can't. And it was hard for him to understand why we don't. King and his wife, Coretta Scott King, recruited Clayton and her first husband, Jet Magazine editor Edward Clayton, to bring more money and attention to the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, an Atlanta-based civil rights organization whose first president was King. Already enlisting movie stars to host SCLC fundraisers, Zernona Clayton was reluctant to leave Southern California. But the two women bonded as Clayton organized Miss King's national singing tour. Soon, she was securing care for bloodied protesters and calling her friends, Sidney Portier, Harry Belafonte, and Bill Cosby for bail money. In 1966, Clayton learned that Atlanta's black doctors were restricted to one facility, Grady Hospital, and to just one day a week. Wednesday was the day black people would have their babies, she recalled. So I organized the doctors and told them, we can do something about this. She found a government ally who shared how much federal money was flowing to Atlanta's segregated hospitals and took the doctors to Washington, scoring a White House visit. President Lyndon Baines Johnson had quietly encouraged such grassroots lobbying and surprised her by insisting that hospitals nationwide had to desegregate before getting Medicare funding. I'm fearless for the most part. You know, I'm not afraid to tackle an issue, Clayton said. I'll fight for what is right. In an era when national news organizations, including the Associated Press, covered civil rights with all-white staffs, her friend Ralph McGill, publisher of the Atlanta Constitution, had her speak to a television industry convention. She took them to task for their hiring. Atlanta CBS affiliate WAGA responded in 1967 by making her the first black talk show host in the South. While King's assassination only months later convulsed the nation, Clayton and her guests provided audiences with a model for racial harmony. She even persuaded a grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan to renounce the white terror organization. They, too, became friends. Barbara Walters recruited her for a network role, but Ted Turner hired her instead to set a tone of inclusiveness at Turner Broadcasting Service, which launched CNN. She served for years as Turner's corporate vice president for urban affairs. Clayton also started the Trumpet Foundation to celebrate African-American achievers and still works there 
amid mementos from a lifetime of activism when she's not with her second husband, Paul L. Brady, the nation's first black federal administrative law judge. Her first husband died in 1966. Clayton got her start as an undercover agent for the Chicago Urban League in the 1950s, arranging job interviews only to be turned down when they saw her skin color. Confronted with proof of racism, Marshall Fields hired his first black store employees. There's something about a victory. Winning is fun, she recalled. It gave me the assurance that I can make a change. And I still have that today, that I can make a change. I can make change. I've made change. Born on August 30th, 1930, with her twin sister Zenobia, she was raised in segregated Muskogee, Oklahoma. Their father was a minister and Indian affairs agent so respected that the white police chief and mayor often came calling for guidance about the black and Native American communities. He was a soft-spoken man, but softly he could make a change in a person's life. And he did it to the authority, the police, the mayor, whatever. I often wonder if maybe I had some of that in my blood. She felt racism sting at what would become Tennessee State University where she and her friends went for hamburgers one night in 1950. This guy was standing at the counter. He had a butcher knife, probably three feet long. I'd never seen a knife that big. But he said to us as we entered the door, if you niggers don't get out of here, I'll cut your heads off. You know you don't belong here. Scared us to death, she recalled. It had a sign outside that says, hamburgers for sale. And... You don't belong here, she said. I still feel the pain, the embarrassment, the ridicule. I still feel it. Clayton earned a master's in education at the University of Chicago, where marrying the editor of Jet put her at the center of black culture and politics. She was by Edward Clayton's side when he heard that the mother of Emmett Till, lynched in Mississippi, wanted the world to see his brutalized body. He stopped the presses to put the image on the cover, shocking the nation's conscience and drawing widespread support for civil rights. The couple then moved to Los Angeles, where Clayton said she did something monumental. Volunteering to take on 100 school dropouts, she discovered some just needed new clothes or hair curlers to return to class. Others were committing crimes, so she talked her way into gang meetings and urged them to study instead for corporate careers. And guess what? To this day, my pride and my chest stand big because I took 100 kids and got 82 of them back in school. It became her motto. One person can make a difference, so don't run away if you see a problem. See if there's a way you can help, she said. I tell people all the time today, look around. There's something you can do. That was the story. Civil rights advocate Zernona Clayton is still fearless. It was written by Michael Warren and was published June 8, 2022 at the Associated Press's AP.com website. The next story on today's African American Hour is from Popular Science Magazine and its PopSci.com website. The title is Gladys Wett's Mathematical Prowess Helped Make GPS Possible. It was written by Tatiana Woodall and was published May 27, 2022. Not many people live long enough to see their inventions change the world, but Gladys West can count herself among those few. A retired naval mathematician 
West spearheaded a mathematical model of the Earth's size and shape, also known as a geoid, G-E-O-I-D, which is an essential layer underpinning today's GPS networks. Since their launch in 1978, satellite navigation systems have touched nearly every aspect of both private and public life on Earth, from emergency response and power grid systems to turn-by-turn navigation and stock exchange timing. West's contributions, however, were unknown to the public for nearly 40 years. Gladys May West, maiden name Brown, was born in October 1930 in Dinwiddie County, Virginia. One of four children of rural farmers and a child of the Great Depression, she knew from a young age that she didn't want to spend her days pulling tobacco on her parents' land. But opportunities for both women and black Americans were sparse. Many accounts of West's life espouse an early love for math and computer programming. But she says necessity, not passion, drove her to the field. My teachers encouraged me to pursue a path that would provide the future I wanted, she recounts to Popular Science. During and after World War II, rapid advancement in science put mathematicians in high demand, and West teachers saw that she could succeed in this area in a way that would set her apart. But that's not to say she didn't fall in love with her work. As I started majoring in math, I realized it really did fit my personality. Neat, orderly, step-by-step, West recalls. West was valedictorian of her high school class and was awarded a scholarship to attend Virginia State College, now university, a historically black college. I made a commitment to be the best I could be and absorb as much knowledge that a little farm girl could handle, West wrote in her 2020 memoir. After graduating with a bachelor's degree in mathematics, she applied for a series of jobs working in Virginia's then-segregated state government, but was repeatedly passed over in favor of white men. She instead returned to Virginia State and completed a master's degree in 1955. A year later, she joined the U.S. Naval Proving Ground in Dahlgren, Virginia, to program and code large-scale computers. West would go on to break both social and scientific barriers during her tenure at Dahlgren, where she was only the second black woman hired. Some of her first contributions, in fact, helped to shape an award-winning computer program that determined how Pluto moves through space relative to Neptune. Over the years, she go on to contribute to many more landmark efforts, most significantly projects related to satellite accuracy. She was fascinated by how long the crafts could stay in space and how much data they could bring back. She was particularly struck by the competition many of these programs inspired, specifically the Soviet Union Sputnik in 1957, and she never tired of watching the satellites launch. In 1978, she became their project manager for an experimental oceanographic satellite program called CSAT. The hardware would gather data on phenomena like wave height, water temperature, and iceberg presence, and was the first program to show that the orbiters could provide insights about the ocean. Although the initiative lasted a mere 110 days, calculations West team made for CSAT, which took into account gravitational and tidal forces that can distort Earth's shape, created an extremely accurate model of the planet. Today, many modern satellite systems rely on that geoid to pinpoint receivers like smartphones, cars, and ambulances on the ground. 
Despite her successes, West, like many women, was often hesitant to present her work. In the early 80s, in an effort to overcome this challenge, she joined international Toastmistress clubs, founded as the female counterpart of Toastmasters International, an educational nonprofit that promotes communication and leadership skills. I was able to reach a certain level of comfort, she says. For a long time, even her children had no sense of her impact and that of her husband, Ira West, a fellow mathematician at Dahlgren. He supervised the development of software programs in geoballistics and anti-submarine warfare, paving the way for many advanced missile systems. I never realized what my parents did each day at work because everything was top secret, says West's daughter, Carolyn Oglesby. To understand now how important their work was and how mom's work specifically impacts our daily lives is just phenomenal. West's contributions finally came to light in 2017 after a commanding officer at the Naval Surface Warfare Center Dahlgren Division praised her during a Black History Month celebration. In 2018, she was inducted into the Air Force's Space and Missiles Pioneers Hall of Fame. At 91, West is still an active member of her local community and her college sorority, Alpha Kappa Alpha. Earlier this year, the U.S. Department of Transportation added her work to a walk of fame inside their headquarters. And while she's always happy to talk shop, there's only one thing that she truly wants people to remember about her own unearthly experiences. The sky is no longer the limit, says West. Set a goal, and when you achieve it, said another. That was a reading of the story. Gladys West's mathematical prowess helped to make GPS possible. It was written by Tatiana Woodall for Popular Science Magazine and its PopSci.com website and was originally published May 27, 2022. Up next on today's African American Hour is a reading from the website Anscape.com. The title is does a foundation's $1 million gift to Tulsa massacre survivors count as reparations? It was written by Jesse Washington and was published June 3, 2022. When a nonprofit organization gave $1 million to three survivors of the Tulsa race massacre recently, it was called many things a blessing, generous, heartfelt, inspiring. But was it reparations? How to best describe the gift carries more than symbolic weight. As a national movement grows to compensate and repair black communities for centuries of enslavement and government-backed racism, there are many views about what reparations should look like and who should fund them. The debates will shape what, if anything, black people eventually receive. Taxpayer cash, community health clinics, educational scholarships, or philanthropic donations like the one handed out in Tulsa, Oklahoma. The $1 million check was presented in May to 108-year-old Viola Ford Fletcher, 170-year-old Leslie Benningfield Randall, and 101-year-old Hughes Van Ellis. They are the last known survivors of the 1921 massacre in which hundreds of black people were killed in Greenwood, one of the most prosperous African-American communities ever seen was utterly destroyed. The check came from the Business for Good Foundation, based in New York State, whose co-founder recently learned about the survivor's ongoing lawsuit seeking reparations and was moved to open his checkbook. 
Several people who spoke at the ceremony where the check was presented were clear that the gift, one of several the survivors have received, should not be considered reparations. The view is shared by Christy Williams, a Tulsa community activist and reparations advocate. Reparations is cash and land from the very system or people that did the oppression, Williams told me. That's accountability. If I did something to hurt you, I need to be the one to fix it, even if it was from my ancestors and I'm benefiting from the harm they did to you, I need to fix that. She was glad the survivors were sharing the money, but I think that makes it easier for Tulsa to make an excuse not to pay. Those people from New York didn't do the harm. It's past time for Tulsa to own up to that. Roy Brooks, a law professor at the University of San Diego and author of the book Atonement and Forgiveness, a new model for black reparations, helped file a lawsuit by survivors against the city of Tulsa and the state of Oklahoma that failed due to the statute of limitations. He described two schools of thought on reparations, the tort model and the atonement model. The tort model seeks to legally force perpetrators to pay restitution. It's based on the structure of civil lawsuits, which often are resolved by cash payments. Under the atonement model, a reparation has a very special meaning, Brooks said. It is the revelation and realization of an apology, and then some redemptive act to make the apology believable. That redemptive act is the reparation. Reparations are limited only by the human imagination. In 2021, Tulsa Mayor G.T. Bynum IV apologized for the massacre during a centennial observance. The violence, sparked by a dubious accusation of wrongdoing against a black man, was encouraged and left to run its course by city officials. Some people deputized by the city and National Guard participated in the mayhem. The city and the state have adamantly fought paying financial reparations, instead choosing to build a history center and encourage real estate projects in Greenwood that are mostly owned by white entrepreneurs. Ron Daniels, convener of the National African American Reparations Commission, had mixed feelings about the recent Tulsa donation. One is exhilaration that these families are going to receive something. I mean, this is one of the most horrific assaults on black people in the history of this country. And for it to go on for this long, over 100 years, is just unconscionable. But this does not exonerate them, the city, or the state, or indeed any corporations that directly were complicit from responsibility. Daniel's definition of reparations, within the context of international law, it is repair for the physical, spiritual, cultural, psychological damage, including to the identity of a group of people perpetrated by one group or institution or nation against another. In his view, the repair has to be defined by the injured party, he said. The perpetrator of the harm cannot define the remedy. And he observed that there has been a flurry of recent reconciliation efforts under the banner of reparations. We've had to remind people that reconciliation is not the beginning of the process. It's the end of the process, Daniel said. You can't reconcile until you have acknowledged the harm, apologized for the harm, and then entered into negotiations around restitution and redress and repair. The concept of a process is shared by Jeffrey Prager, a UCLA sociology professor who studies reparations. It's not about money alone. It's really about the idea that a community or individuals, or in this case, this charity group, 
are willing to acknowledge that a wrong had been done and that there needs to be steps taken to attempt to repair the wrong. It's not just about giving back money lost, it's to demonstrate the recognition that there's a whole series of ways in which the nation or cities or individuals can seek to heal these enormous wounds. So this Tulsa gift could be considered part of the reparations process? Absolutely, Prager said. All these various interpretations come as at least 11 cities are considering how to pursue reparations and as the decades-old federal H.R. 40 bill, which would set up a process to study reparations at the national level, inches toward a vote in the House. There is still an overwhelming resistance from most white Americans to cash restitution, which may be pushing other remedies to the forefront because they are more easily obtainable. In California, which passed a law to study reparations and make recommendations on how to implement them, a majority black panel has barely been able to agree on who should be eligible. Evanston, Illinois is using a marijuana tax to give black residents funds for real estate purchases and improvements, even as prominent black scholars insist the program is piecemeal and misleading. Still, in terms of the most recent Tulsa donation, Nobody is begrudging these elders the money that came their way, even if it was 101 years later. I have this strange hope, said Williams, the activist, that the city and the state learned a lesson. If random strangers can do this, why can't we do something? There is one photograph that goes along with this story. It is a color picture that shows three people waving to a crowd as they ride in a parade. The caption reads, Tulsa race massacre survivors from left to right, Hughes Van Ellis, Lessie Randall, and Viola Fletcher ride in a carriage at the front of the Black Wall Street Memorial on May 28, 2021. That was a reading of the story. Does a foundation's $1 million gift to massacre survivors count as reparations? It appeared at the Anscape.com website and was written by Jesse Washington and was originally published June 3rd, 2022. Next on the African American Hour is a story from the AfricanNews.com website. The title is, Belgian King Arrives in Kinshasa for First Official Visit. It was written by the African News staff and was originally published June 8th, 2022. The Democratic Republic of Congo, DRC, has welcomed Belgium's King Philippe to what is a historic visit to the Central African country that the king's ancestor once ruled brutally as his personal fief. The monarch arrived Tuesday and will undertake a six-day trip billed as a chance for reconciliation. On Monday, Congolese government spokesman Patrick Muyaya told reporters that Belgium and the Democratic Republic of Congo were starting a new partnership. We are not forgetting the past. We are looking to the future, he added. Belgium's colonization of the Congo was one of the harshest imposed by the European powers that ruled most of Africa in the late 19th and 20th centuries. Belgian Prime Minister Alexander de Croo, who is visiting the nation of 90 million people alongside the king, echoed the sentiment. It's a historic moment, he told a Belgian national broadcaster Tuesday, hailing the opportunity to forge future closer ties. 
Belgium's colonization of the Congo was one of the harshest imposed by the European powers that ruled most of Africa in the late 19th and 20th centuries. King Leopold II, the brother of Felipe's great-great-grandfather, oversaw the conquest of what is now DRC, governing the territory as his personal property between 1885 and 1908 before it became a Belgian colony. The next section is titled Brutal Rule. Historians say that millions of people were killed, mutilated or died of diseases as they were forced to collect rubber under his rule. The land was also pillaged for its mineral wealth, timber and ivory. The visit is King Philippe's first to DRC since ascending the throne in 2013. His father, King Albert II, visited the country in 2010. Belgium is preparing to return to Kinshasa a tooth. The last remains of Patrice Lumumba a hero of the anti-colonial struggle and short-lived first prime minister of the independent Congo. Lumumba was murdered by Congolese separatists and Belgian mercenaries in 1961, and his body dissolved in acid, but the tooth was kept as a trophy by one of the killers, a Belgian police officer. According to Belgium's royal palace, the king is also due to discuss the question of returning artworks looted during the colonial era. Philippe is due to hold a ceremony with President of the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Felix Tshisekedi, capital T-S-S-H-I-S-E-K-E-D-I, at the Congolese Parliament in Kinshasa on Wednesday, and then on Friday deliver a speech to university students in the southern city of Lubumbashi, capital L-U-B-U-M-B-A-S-H-I. On Sunday, the Belgian sovereign will visit the clinic of gynecologists Dennis Mukwege, capital M-U-K-W-E-G-E, co-winner of the 2018 Nobel Peace Prize for his fight against sexual violence in the eastern city of Bukavu, capital B-U-K-A-V-U. The trip comes at a time of heightened tension between Kinshasa and neighboring Rwanda over rebel activity in the conflict-torn eastern DRC. DRC's government has accused Rwanda of backing the resurgent M23 militia, an accusation which Rwanda has denied. That was a reading of the story, Belgian King Arrives in Kinshasa for First Official Visit. It was originally published June 8, 2022 at the com website and was written by the africannews.com staff. Up next on today's African American Hour is a book review from the Wall Street Journal. The title of the book is The Islander by Chris Blackwell with Paul Morley. The title of the article is One More Spin Around the Island by Wesley Stace, capital S-T-A-C-E. It was originally published June 4th, 2022. When you think of Island Records, you think of U2. And when you think of U2, you think of Island Records. Chris Blackwell summarizes in his memoir, The Islander, My Life in Music and Beyond. I am a man who thinks very little of U2. When I think of Island Records, I think of Chris Blackwell. Island, once arguably the most prestigious record company in the world, introduced us to Bob Marley, Cat Stevens, and Traffic. Mr. Blackwell, 
whom the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2001 called the single person most responsible for turning the world on to reggae music, was also a notable record producer responsible for singles as seminal as Willie Smith's My Boy Lollipop, Jamaica's first internationally successful hit, as well as career-defining albums for Marley, the B-52s, John Martin, Grace Jones, and others. All these mavericks seem to have been created in Mr. Blackwell's own outsider image. He calls himself a sort of hybrid, a mutant. But it is Marley with whom Mr. Blackwell felt a personal affinity who is the emotional center of the islander due to the book's occasionally unchronological structure, the singer's death from cancer in 1981 keeps coming up as though it haunts Mr. Blackwell daily. Mr. Blackwell, now 84, was born in London, but from a very young age grew up in Jamaica. James Bond and his creator, Ian Fleming, whose vision of Jamaica as a gentleman's playground Mr. Blackwell describes as a hangover from the dying British Empire, loomed large in the Islander. During the first chapters of which Mr. Blackwell finds himself as a young man cavorting among the Anglo-Jamaican royalty, his early mentors include Fleming, Noel Coward, and Errol Flynn. The last punches a young Blackwell for trying to steal a girlfriend, but is otherwise avuncular. Errol fancied my mother. In fact, it is Fleming who had a lengthy, close relationship with Blackwell's mother, the stunning and athletic Blanche Adelaide Lindo, finding in her the inspiration not only for Honey Child Rider, as immortalized by Ursula Andress in Dr. No, but also Pussy Galore, Honor Blackman and Goldfinger. This detail told on page three is repeated shortly thereafter, but this is surely a fact about one's mother that anybody might be forgiven for reiterating. The Islander, among the many pleasures, doubles as a first-hand history of the development of Jamaican music. The acoustic mento of the 1940s and 50s, Ska's bizarre Big Bang traced to Fats Domino's 1959 hit Be My Guest, for which Jamaicans chose to play along on the offbeat where it sounded better, and where it took the listener by surprise, the origin of reggae's bass-heavy sound with distortion and intentional part of its flavor. In the 1950s, Mr. Blackwell gets in on the ground floor as a jukebox selector, the person responsible for picking out the best songs and the best sequence in which to play them to keep the party going, more or less what he ended up doing for the rest of his life, which led him to wonder, as all empire builders must, why not produce and release the records that go in the jukebox? Thus, the birth of Island Records in 1959 is named a nod to Harry Belafonte's 1957 movie of interracial romance, Island in the Sun. The Islander offers a vivid series of John Arbery-esque brief lives of Mr. Blackwell's most notable artists. Far more has been said at far greater length elsewhere about Marley or, say, Martin, but Mr. Blackwell's sympathy for his subjects reveals unspoken truths we might easily have intuited if only we'd listened to the music hard enough. Marley might now be an icon, but it's easy to forget 
that his final two New York dates before his death at the age of 36 were as the opening act for the Commodores at Madison Square Garden. The chapter on Marley's posthumous commercialization by means of a best-of album is clear-eyed, taking us deep into the logic of the release. Dave Robinson, who co-founded Stiff Records and, after a merger, was running both Stiff and Island, skillfully managed the difficult task of selling a complex revolutionary figure to the masses. Though Mr. Robinson's combative mass market tactics, laser focused on the love songs, diluted Marley's politics and thereafter clashed with Island's long established rhythms, Mr. Blackwell knew it had to be done, though he wished there was a world where we didn't have to do it. I have never read anything better on Tom Waits, let alone in so few words. Their first meeting with Mr. Waits, looking down, no eye contact, very tight shoulders, not a word coming out of his mouth, reminded Mr. Blackwell of his final encounter with Nick Drake, the island singer-songwriter famous since 1999 for the posthumous inclusion of his song Pink Moon in a Volkswagen ad, who would soon die of a drug overdose at the age of 26. Best of all, one is always sent scurrying back to the music. Grace Jones's Warm Leatherette, a great-sounding record by any stretch, never sounded so magnificent as it did after reading Mr. Blackwell's dissection of his production at his Compass Point Studios in the Bahamas after he'd finally found his island sound. Mr. Blackwell is doubtless tougher and more ruthless than the scruffy and sandaled directionless Anglo-Irish-Jamaican boarding school flameout who narrates the Islander. Ahmet Erdogan, who co-founded Atlantic Records, nicknamed him the Babyface Killer. He was the titular villain of Jimmy Cliff's 1974 song, Number One Ripoff Man, Lee Scratch Perry, who previously produced Bob Marley and the Whalers, dubbed him as an energy pirate and a vampire. The Whalers were long bitter that Mr. Blackwell turned Marley into a solo artist, and there was the fracas with U2's unpaid royalties. Both sides emerged with dignity, U2 with ownership of their master recordings and 10% of Ireland. It's unclear how much of Ireland the band owns. There were also the ones that got away. Losses Mr. Blackwell acknowledges with the shrug you give when you miss a bus, knowing there'll be another one soon. Elton John, far too shy and even stayed. Pink Floyd, too boring. Madonna, I couldn't work out what on earth I could do for her. And Dire Straits, during whose showcase Mr. Blackwell was too busy talking. In truth, The Islander is more a professional biography than an intimate memoir. There are no children mentioned by name and his wife's designations are purely temporal. I was married at the time to my first wife, Josephine, or my wife at the time, the beautiful model and actress Marilyn Rickard. Finally, with three chapters to go, we meet Grace Jones's friend, Mary Vinson, whom Mr. Blackwell married in 1998, but who died in 2004 from multiple myeloma. In the late 80s, Mr. Blackwell admits the jazz went out of it. Marley was dead, and his other good friend, Cat Stevens, was now on the road to find out as Yusef Islam. In 1989, Mr. Blackwell sold Island to Polygram with an initial commitment to stay on as chief executive. 
But try as he might, he soon realized that it was impossible to carry on as the kind of entrepreneur he wanted to be within the polygram corporate structure. And thus, the Islander circles back to Bond and Goldeneye, Fleming's former estate, now owned by Mr. Blackwell. It's become part of his portfolio of luxury hotels where he considered and decided against numbering the suites 001 to 007 alongside his other post-island ventures, including his own Blackwell rum. It's at this point that the book takes a turn and starts to read slightly like a promotional brochure. Of a typical experience at Goldeneye, he enthuses dreamily, wander over the footbridge that leads to the beachfront Bizeau bar, and there's Elon Musk on his own having a drink. Depending on how you feel about the extraterrestrial empire builder, this might or might not incline you to visit the resort. A billionaire's urges to scratch nonstop itches and stretch their empires, Mr. Blackwell, the more earthly mogul, admits, it's not something I think about. There's one photograph that goes along with this story. It's a color photograph of four men. The man on the left has on a yellow shirt and is holding a guitar. The man next to him has on a green jacket with long flowing dreadlocks. The man next to him has on a white shirt and a black jacket, and he also has dreadlocks that fall below his shoulders. And next to him is a man with a long sleeve, steel pulse t-shirt, and he's holding a Polaroid camera in his hand. The caption reads, jamming. From left, Junior Marvin, Bob Marley, Jacob Miller, and Chris Blackwell in an undated photograph. That was a reading of a book review from the Wall Street Journal. The title of the article was One More Spin Around the Island, written by Wesley Stace. The name of the book it reviewed is The Islander by Chris Blackwell with Paul Morley. That's all the time we have for the African American Hour. My name is Byron Buckner. Thanks for joining me.